Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. There's no denying the last two years have been a major challenge for everyone. Between the pandemic and the natural disasters across the nation, hurricanes, fires, floods, we've seen it all. On this episode, we're learning how people are coping from coast to coast. We begin here in New Orleans with Chef Eric Cook, who battled to keep his first restaurant, Grigri, open while somehow finding the inspiration to open a second. Then, Gibson Thomas, publisher and editor of Edible Marin and Wine Country magazine, shares the latest on how vintners are adapting to an ongoing series of wildfires burning across California. And we'll meet Peterson Harder, a New Orleans-born chef and entrepreneur who's become an advocate for mental health in the Bay Area while operating his popular sandwich pop-up, Sandy's SF. We're getting reports from the trenches from brave folks working to survive the challenges of today's world on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Eric Cook. I'm the chef and owner of Grigri and St. John. Opening and operating a successful restaurant can be a daunting task, even in the best of times. And these are not the best of times. The last few years have been a roller coaster of unknowns, and restaurants across Louisiana have either had to shut down or fight to survive in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Chef Eric Cook is a native New Orleanian and combat veteran who served six years in the United States Marine Corps before beginning his culinary career in his hometown. After honing his skills in some of New Orleans' best restaurants, he opened his first restaurant, Grigri, on Magazine Street in 2018, and his second, St. John, in the French Quarter in October 2021. All the while, Eric had to navigate the uncertainties of running a business and cope with changing conditions brought on by the pandemic. Eric joined us in the studio to talk about his career in food and stepping up to meet the challenges facing the industry today. Would you tell me how you came to become a chef and why food is your life? Um, it was really you know, an accidental career for me. It was, I never really ate in a restaurant until I worked in a restaurant. You know, because I, I came out of school, I joined the Marine Corps when I was 17 years old. Um, and, you know, I got out of New Orleans because that's, you know, I think it was what I was meant to do. You know, I got a, a military background in the family. So, you know, I went away. And when I, I got out of the Marine Corps in my early 20s, um, 
I really didn't have any direction at all. And I didn't really know what I was going to do. And the wonderful thing about New Orleans is that, you know, everybody knows somebody. You know, like, I've got a guy who's got a guy type situation. And it just so happened that um, a friend of mine got me into a restaurant. My first real job, I, I was going to work at Brennan's on Royal. And I remember I showed up with uh, a pair of topsiders on, a pair of khakis, and like a, a button-down shirt because I didn't really know what I was doing at all. And... One of the cooks, like, loaned me a jacket, and then, you know, I was like, okay, and it was just a foreign land to me. But, you know, I got in the back, and I was just, you know, peeling potatoes, and I was peeling shrimp, and I was just hanging out with, you know, Mike Roussel, uh, Lazone Randolph, you know, Gerald Spears, you know, the great, great legends of that restaurant. Um, you know, the transformation from yes, sir, no, sir, in the Marine Corps to yes, chef, no, chef was very easy. And, and taking direction, I was like, you know, if they said run through the wall, like how many times do you want me to go through the wall? I'll do it, you know. So I was just that kid, you know, still. So, And that's what really got me into, um, I think, staying into it. And then once um, I progressed, I guess, you know, I really just I kind of fell in love with it, you know, the environment, you know, the you know, the life. You know, it's not so much a living as it is a life, you know. It's so addictive. The adrenaline, the it, it, it's almost like being in theater. It absolutely is, you know, and I'm lucky my wife is uh, a retired professional ballerina and, you know, she was a star of stage, you know, and so I really, I connect with that. Um, we have conversations about the similarities that we have in our professions and that you're on stage, you know, and no matter what happens, the show must go on. So what happens after Brennan? Well, you know, um, after that, um, my next big move was Commanders, you know, and uh, it was uh, an eye-opener for me because obviously that place, you know, working at, in Brennan's was, was amazing, big, giant restaurant, you know, but we had that little tiny French Quarter kitchen, you know, and, and I walked in the Commander's kitchen. I'm like, wow. I'm like, this is overwhelming, you know, just the everything was beautiful and shiny and you know and, and the people walk through the kitchen and you know you're really now you're really on stage um but commanders is where i really learned um that you have to see from the front door to the back door you know that i i, I learned about hospitality you know i learned um more of not what to do but why to do things you know and that was a big turning point for me and of course you know looking back i'm i wasn't um, who I am today. I was a rock and roll maniac, you know, I was running around with the big dogs. We thought we were the greatest things in the world, you know, that was just kind of what it was, you know. You, you really take pride in working in a big place like that. When did you know that you needed to have your own restaurant? Um, it really, <laughs> you know, looking back, I don't think it was my decision. Uh, my wife and my sisters and my mom and my family are, you know, some of my biggest fans. And my sisters are always like, you have to open a restaurant. You should open your own restaurant. You should open your own restaurant, you know, all the time. And my wife was, uh, you know, a big fan as well, too. And they just, you know, they said, it's time. You know, you need to open your own restaurant. And in my mind, I'm going, you're crazy. You know, I'm like, and working in restaurants for so long, you know, knowing the the business end of it, you know, the the margins, the... You know, and then being in New Orleans, you know, this amazing food town, I was like, I, I, I don't know. You know, I had no idea. And so we kind of haphazardly started looking around, you know, at places. And um, that place on Magazine, 1800 Magazine, was available. And I remember uh, 
my wife walking in the building and just crying and saying, this is it. This is you. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. You know, I'm like, okay, let's do it. You know, so my wife and I would stay up all night long. We, we wrote a business plan, you know, like our first. You know, like what are we, we didn't have any idea what we were doing. You know, and my wife coming out of theater, you know, she worked for a ballet company for, you know, decades. And all of a sudden, we're, we're trying to open a restaurant. And uh, we wrote this business plan. I'm like, okay, now we need money. You know, and what do we do? You know, so, and that's the big stretch that, you know, I don't know if everyone understands how the financial aspect of, of opening a restaurant is, is insane. It's just crazy. I had to mortgage my home. I had to mortgage my parents' home. Um, we really had to go to the cliff and, and say, okay, let's hold hands and jump. And we did. When did Gregory open? We opened in uh, August of 2018, uh, which was, you know, looking back, summers in New Orleans are completely kind of non-existent for restaurants. They very much slow down. And everyone's like, you're crazy opening in August. What are you doing? It's the worst time of the year to open, you know? And I was like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll take some time, you know, to figure it out. We'll work through a couple of weeks and, and we'll figure it out. So when we do get into season, which was October through June, I guess now, um, we'll be ready to go. And uh, this is exactly how it went. I remember August, it was just very slow. And, you know, and I remember, you know, looking at social media and going, well, all these people are liking this thing. Why aren't they coming here? You know, and it was just one of those, you know, you're terrified. You're, you know, you're, you want to, you know, you don't want to jump out and, and, and fail. So I remember it was very, very tough. And I, we got to uh, the last week in September. My wife and I were sitting in the office and I remember we were talking and she was like, well, I hope things pick up soon because we can't pay our payroll next week. This is it. We're out of money. And I was like, we'll be okay. I'm like, we'll be okay. And then, you know, New Orleans wakes up in October. And October 1st is when the kind of light switch went on. We were eight weeks into being a restaurant, and our honeymoon was over with the six to eight week. Wait them get together. And once October happened, we didn't look back. It was boom, and we're off and running. So, um that was a very, very crazy, crazy time for us. But we got through it, and, and we just stuck to our guns, and, and we made it, which is crazy. <laughs> Before long, Grigri became a local favorite. Named People's Choice 2018 Restaurant of the Year by Eater New Orleans, Eric also nabbed the title of Chef of the Year. More accolades followed as Grigri became known for its elevated Southern cuisine. A year and a half later, though, Eric's resolve would once again be put to the test. Coming up next, our conversation with Chef Eric Cook continues as we learn how he fought to keep the doors of Grigri open and then surprisingly opened a second restaurant, St. John, in October 2021. Louisiana Eats returns after the break.
Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. just joining us, we've been speaking with New Orleans native Eric Cook, who served in both the Marine Corps and Commander's Palace Kitchen before opening Grigri on Magazine Street in 2018. In October 2021, he opened his second restaurant, St. John, at 1117 Decatur Street in the French Quarter. When we left off, it was 2018, and Eric and his entire family were just able to keep the doors of Grigri open long enough for them to survive and then thrive for about 16 months. The pandemic hit in March of 2020, and by July, Grigri was once again in dire straits. In this moment of uncertainty, Eric posted an open letter to the city of New Orleans on his Facebook page. In it, he expressed his frustration with the pandemic and the government's response to it, articulating the impossible situation he and other restaurateurs found themselves in. The post went viral. Eric, I really want to talk with you specifically about that letter it was so articulate, it was so clear, and it you spoke for so many. Um, yeah, that was a weird time, you know, it was. In the, in the, the dark days of <clears throat> the lockdown, I didn't see the end of what we were in, you know. To me, it was like, this is like a, we're on this fatal mission of, you know, the restaurant's closed. There's no hope in sight. Um, we don't have the money to survive. You know, I, I'm, I'm running out of money trying to take care of people who work for me. And I spent a lot of days uh, walking around in my backyard talking to myself, you know. And I was I really did. I mean, I kind of threw myself into, I don't know where I was. I was just, it was dark. And I started gardening and doing things. My wife would come out and say, like, stop talking to yourself, you know. <laughs> and one morning at breakfast, I just started just on a rant, just started complaining and uh, venting what was going on in my head. And my daughter, unbeknownst to me, was recording it. She, like, grabbed her phone and just started recording it. After breakfast, they both got up and, and they walked off, and I went back outside and you know, talk to my elephant ears. And, you know, what they did was they went back into uh, my daughter's room on a computer and they deciphered it and they, they put it into words. And, you know, the move obviously remove a couple of probably, you know. Expletives? Yes, there was definitely a couple <laughs> of those in there. 
and they posted it. And what response did you get? It was huge. <laughs> I think it was like 240,000 shares at one point. It was uh, the number one uh, MSN uh, searched thing in the country for a while. It was, it was crazy, you know. But what it did was it finally let people see who I am, you know. And, and from that, as we started moving forward with, uh, you know, uh, reopening, you know, under, you know, guidelines, obviously, of course, people would come in and say, hey, I'm here because I read your letter. And it hasn't been easy. Oh, no. But Grigri made it. You know, the, the, the reality of it is it's a business, you know, but when I tell you, you know, when we shut down, um, I mean, we lost everything again. You know, we were right back where we were in August of 2018, looking at a bunch of zeros going, okay, let's start over. Well, here's a million dollar question. Did the government help you? Um, to, I guess, an extent, um, yeah, they, they helped us, but it was basically this. Hey, you're closed. You cannot open. We'll give you a loan so you can pay your employees who don't work and they're not open. And you've got eight weeks to pay to spend that money on this very strict guideline of things. And I think at that point it was the first runaround was, I think, you've got 20% can go to – the building, whether it be your lease, your rent, your whatever. And the other 80% goes to payroll. So you're like, okay, so I, I've got a business not open. It's not generating money. I'm going to pay some employees who aren't working and doing anything. And then I'm going to use 20% of that loan and pay my rent with it and my electric bill and stuff, which is still going, which you're still paying taxes. You're still paying everyone and so here they come back again boom payroll protection number two coming back at you and it was just a, a series of like jumping on an alligator's back to an alligator's back to an alligator's back to an alligator's back hoping one doesn't turn and grab you you know but just you're just trying to get across the damn river you know thank god you're a louisiana guy who knew how to jump alligators yeah and so <laughs> so you survive and then finally finally they come out with the Restaurant Revitalization Act. Yeah, that's the go, big one. And here we go. Yes, this is the one. This is they finally figured it out. We finally got someone paying attention to us of what we really need. And so you start that process. And again, I, I, I can't even begin to describe, you know, the, the paperwork that goes into these things, you know, will fill this room, you know, ten times. And they say 11 o'clock on Wednesday, whatever the date was, you know, boom, press send, and you're ready to go. So we're all set up, and we're all excited about this going to happen. And boom, you press send at 11 o'clock, you know, in one second in the morning. And at 11, like 15, the same hour, like 14 minutes later, they're out of money. But at that point, you don't know whether you get the money or not, right? right? You just say— You just you're, say, you're, well, I did it, and I'm in there. You're in the queue, that's where you are. You're in the queue, you know, and that's how you live your life in the queue. And then you start hearing about, well, this group got it and that group got it and this group got it. And you're like, okay. And you start figuring out like, how, what, 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 what was the 
I don't understand. You know, I, you know so eventually you just go, we, we just said, okay, that's never happening. And it never happened. It never happened. And that was, that was the most deflating part of it was going through everything we went through, getting to that point, finally realizing that there's a program for restaurants to, to revitalize and then just getting dirt kicked in your face again. And you go, that's it. I'm not relying on anyone. The end. And we started over the way we started the first time. We're going to shake hands. We're going to say hi. We're going to take care of our neighbors. We're going to take care of our community. We're going to take care of our employees, obviously. We're going to take care of our guests, you know. And a lot of people came out to take care of us during that time. Folks who eat in the restaurant three, four times a month would come in and say, hey, this is the money we're going to spend in your, in your restaurant this month. Take it. Do what you need to do with it, you know. So it was really um, it was cool. But you've got to, you've got to run a business and that's about, you've got to run your back office, you know, as much as you can do in the front and in the kitchen and the smells and the sights and the sounds and the service, man, you've got to run your back office. You've got to be smart with your business. You have to be. After the year you had in 2020, and I can't say that 2021 has been a piece of cake for anyone. Absolutely not. How in God's name did you make the decision to open a second restaurant? It's a good question. <laughs> the decision to do St. John was, you know, borderline, I guess, crazy, but we're not done yet. And, uh, you know, I, we've got a really, really great group of folks around us, and we've got another project in us, I know, at least one more, you know, that we're going to try and pull off Um that we've been talking about before this happened. This, when I tell you this, like just happened. It just happened. And and, and you know, July twenty eighth wasn't that long ago. And I think I had a team on site on August second. It's unbelievable. And I planned on opening September fifteenth, but we had a little wind event that came oh, through yeah, town. Oh, you had know? a little wind event, but Hurricane Ida didn't hardly slow you down a beat. It, it it definitely took it took the wind out of us a little bit. But you know, and I tell you, I just cut the trees off of my house uh, this past Sunday because I had to put the house on hold to make sure that I can get the restaurants back together, make sure people had a place to come back to work. So um, I got a lot of gardening to do still. <laughs> Thank God you love what you do. <laughs> I do. I absolutely love it. I love it so much. That was Eric Cook, chef and owner of Grigri. And now St. John Restaurants in New Orleans. My name is Gibson Thomas. I am the publisher and editor of Edible Marin and Wine Country Magazine. With a focus on California's Marin, Napa, and Sonoma counties, Edible Marin and Wine Country magazine covers local and seasonal food and drink in the region and those involved in its journey from farm to table. The quarterly magazine was founded over 12 years ago by Gibson Thomas, who I first met through our mutual involvement in the early days of Slow Food USA. Over the past several years, as climate change has thrown conditions in California's wine region increasingly off balance, Gibson has been speaking with local winemakers and sharing their stories in her edible publication. 
She joined us to explain the challenges vintners now face and how they are adapting to survive. This is the fourth year of devastating wine country wildfires. It's, you know, we've been hit by these wildfires, then been hit by the pandemic. But even longer term, we're dealing with drought, which is going to change um, the way wine country has to operate and plant. And we even have farms that are deciding not to plant crops this summer because they were not going to be able to water them. And dairy farms that are closing because they do not have the water in order to provide for their dairy cows. Even if your grapes don't burn, even if your winery doesn't burn, smoke taint is a huge problem. And the science behind smoke taint, which is, you know, the smoke can drift for miles from a fire and it will affect your grapes. And if your grapes are not ripening early enough in the harvest season, um, then they'll still be on the vine. And you can't test for smoke taint in a grape. You can't test the fresh pressed juice. You don't know even after you bottle wine, it could show up two years later. What is going on to try to help the situation in California? Well, it seems like the the Napa County Board of Supervisors has just recently decided they're going to put money behind um, clearing fire breaks um, in sort of we it's there's a lot of wooded area in addition to the vineyard properties there and vineyards actually act as a natural fire break. Um, Ironically, the ones that do not act as a natural firebreak are biodynamic and organic vineyards because they are using cover crops to um, retain the soil moisture and to bring in beneficial insects. But those cover crops will burn. Um, they also build a lot of uh their vineyards on the hills, and that is very hard to fight a fire there. So there has to be a lot of research done. There was an article in my, I believe, the spring issue about how some of the top winemakers and vintners are experimenting with other varietals of grapes. We may not be known for, you know, our famous Napa Valley Chardonnay uh, anymore or Cabernet because those grapes may not be able to withstand the temperature differences that climate change is inevitably going to bring. I know you have relationships with countless food and wine producers across that area. Is there anybody's tale in particular that stands out in your head you could share with us? Oh, gosh, Poppy, there's so, so many, and and everyone has really been affected differently. Um, The famous old vineyards that put Napa Valley on the map, um, they decided last year that they were not going to make a 2020 vintage because their grapes had been affected by smoke taint. I imagine there has been a lot of outreach, fundraising, and aid for everyone there. Can you tell us what's been done? The community has really come together, and that's been wonderful. Um, There's definitely a feeling of we're all in this 
together for the most part. And it's just, you know, the hits keep coming. Um, the fires, the pandemic, more fires. But people have been great um, about fundraising, donation of product. Um, there's a story in my new, um, in my issue on these community fridges. And so you can go to a farmer's market and you buy extra and you give it to the community fridges. I don't know if there's anything. We've the been having here. community fridges here since the pandemic. Wow. Then. It's that's such a great idea. It's that's great. A, yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of, you know, there's an empowerment there for the people who need that help and that they're then getting the same food that, you know, we like to shop at the farmer's market and get local and fresh. Um, and they're able to get those same sort of ingredients through these community fridges. I would say overall that, you know, Gavin Newsom, our governor in California, he himself is a restaurateur. His family, they own a winery. And so he's very proactive. And frankly, even if he weren't, the wine industry, the hospitality industry, the writing is on the wall with the numbers. Um, I don't have the exact figures in my head, but without the wine industry and the hospitality industry, you know, California is what, one of the top economies in the world, larger than many small countries. And that business, that segment of the industry is a huge part of that. So the government really is getting involved to offer aid and to, you know, we have enormous research facilities at the University of California at Davis and their School of Enology that's helping grape growers look into what can be done, different grape varietals for climate change, and also um, farming practices that can provide a fire break in case of a fire. Gibson, what a tale and what terrifying days we live in. Thank you for coming to visit us and giving us the full scoop on what's happening in the wine country. Always a pleasure. Gibson Thomas, publisher and editor of Edible Marin and Wine Country magazine. You'll find a link to the quarterly print and digital publication on our website at poppytooker.com. What is a maitake mushroom and why has it become a favorite among chefs? Stay tuned and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Let's all Louisiana. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 miles north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. 
This fall includes many outdoor festivals, the weekend beats and eats, and upcoming holiday events. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is a maitake mushroom? And why has it become a favorite among chefs? Maitake mushrooms, also known as hen of the woods or ram's head, is an autumnal mushroom that grows naturally at the base of oak trees, especially dead or dying oaks. They can be foraged successfully in northern temperate forests throughout eastern Canada and the U.S. and are also found in China, northeastern Japan, and throughout Europe. The maitake is highly medicinal. It boosts the immune system to fight cancer and stabilizes blood sugars and blood pressure. Maitakis are best when cooked, revealing a strong, pleasant, earthy flavor when sautéed, roasted, deep-fried, and dried. Its crunchy, chewy texture makes it a satisfying meat substitute. As chefs experiment further with this magic mushroom, domestic production has dramatically increased, and maitakis are being farmed by some of the best mushroom producers across the world. Our next guest has created a bit of a sensation in San Francisco with his maitake creations. To learn more about that, let's talk with New Orleans native, Peterson Harder. Hi, my name is Peterson Harder. I run Sandy's SF here in San Francisco. Chef, bartender, surfer, and New Orleans native, Peterson Harder and I go way back. Long before he moved west and opened a popular sandwich pop-up in San Francisco, I've known him from birth as the youngest son of my very dear friend Lee Barnes. Many fellow New Orleanians will remember Lee Barnes' cooking school, which she opened in 1974, the first of its kind in the Crescent City. Peterson was just a little boy when Lee closed the school in 1989. She tragically died from a brain tumor a mere three years later at the age of 41. As an adult, Peterson was drawn into the food world just like his mom and launched his own cooking career right here in New Orleans. I did. I did. Yeah, she was the uh, she was the pathway for me. It, it took me until my 20s to finally realize that. But yeah, I, I followed in her very large footsteps. After working at several local restaurants, including Vincent's, K. Paul's, and Stella, Peterson furthered his career with a degree from the Culinary Institute of America, 
As a student there, he took on several externships, working in some of the best restaurant kitchens across the U.S. Once he landed in San Francisco, he was seduced by the Bay Area's burgeoning food scene. I really love the city. I mean, just the restaurants that I've been able to work at, bartending at Monster Benjamin, and then went over to the Progress and was bartending there. That, I think, really changed the trajectory for me because just the cuisine itself, which is such an incredible cuisine, and like the environment was just one of the best environments I've ever worked in. It was just like such a great opportunity, and then it all just came crashing down. Peterson's career momentum came to a screeching halt as the COVID-19 pandemic found him restless and sheltering in place with his partner and fellow chef, Moni Frailing. So my partner, Moni, and I are not people that know how to sit around and just do nothing. (laughs) So we decided, like everybody else, uh, she wanted to start baking sourdough during the pandemic and decided to actually do this as a job. And so we started building it up and through Instagram, started building this business. Making sandwiches on a red wheat sourdough boule with a rotating spread and seasonal pickle, they called their pop-up Bread Spread Pickle. As the venture started taking off, their already tiny apartment began shrinking in size. It was rough. It definitely took over the majority of the space. Our kitchen was designed like a professional kitchen. We had storage in there. We had a prep table in there. And then our second bedroom was taken over. We had a bread table in there. We had a commercial refrigerator, dry storage. And I said, once it reaches into the bedroom, we're done. I was like, I'm over it. One of the more unusual features of Bread Spread Pickle was their impromptu takeout window, created by simply opening up the window of their San Francisco apartment. It was almost like a little Rapunzel. We would just like hand it down through the window. So people would come up and we would chat, keep our distance with the masks on. We had dog treats for all the dogs that would come up. And it was just, I mean, looking back, it was just such an incredible experience. And it could only be born out of a pandemic where it's just like, this is not normal circumstances. And so we took a really bad situation and tried to make the best of it. The spirit of innovation that helped Peterson create Bread Spread Pickle can also be found in his latest pop-up, Sandy's SF. The idea was born from an accidental excess of cauliflower and carrot jardinier. We had so much left over. We just, we just messed up our numbers and somehow had a ton left over. And me being from New Orleans, I looked at that and I was like, you know what? I know exactly what we can do with that. So I was like, let's make muffalata salad. And then I was just like, no, no, let's make muffaladas. I was like, let's just do it. Like, I haven't had a muffalata so long. So we ended up making a muffalata, selling it out of our window, and people loved it. Then the next week did it again, and people loved it. And after that, someone from Eater actually reached out and said, hey, we see that you're doing muffaladas. We'd like to do an article. Where are you popping up? So we had to scramble and try to find a place to pop up out of. We were fortunate enough to do that, and that's kind of how Sandy's was started, is through the muffalata. In a nod to his new California roots and the vegetarian-influenced West Coast diet, Peterson also added his own spin on the classic sandwich, something that would raise more than a few eyebrows here at home, a maitake mushroom muffalata. Well, first off, can I tell you how much pushback I've had from friends in New Orleans seeing that my Taki mushroom muffalata? I, I just, they are not happy with me about that, but they also need to try it. So my Taki mushrooms being as delicious as they are, 
we roast up the maitake so they're a little crispy it's almost bacon like roast them up with some scallions some cajun seasoning and just put that into the sandwich so remove all of the meat put the maitakes in my, my partner loves it even more than the regular one and most people do too they try it and they're like i they, they're trying not to offend me when they tell me but they're like i'm not gonna lie this tastes better than the meat one because there's just so much umami in there and it's just it's a hit i i love it i'm so happy with that sandwich although he is now a californian Peterson has remained true to his Bayou State birthplace, offering chicken and andouille jambalaya and introducing seafood boils to the Sandy's pop-up clientele. With business gaining steam, I asked Peterson about his vision for the future of Sandy's SF. I think that's the difficult thing because actually um, from one of your previous episodes where you talked about the businessmen where they ended up getting the, the trademark before the business, that's kind of how I feel is that we got the sandwich before the business. <laughs> so we're kind of piecing it together right now. For me, I envision it as being fast, casual in New Orleans, but I also kind of want to put our twist on it. Like we just offered up a coleslaw where it's not your typical mayonnaise soupy coleslaw. We're throwing in a lot of fresh herbs. So it's kind of taking little pieces of bread spread pickle and throwing them in there. So house pickled red onions, pickled jalapenos. So we want it to be light and fresh and enjoyable, but then some other things that we're going to do are going to be heavy. So it's just kind of like finding that balance of like, what do we want to eat where it's an influence of New Orleans, but it also has an influence of California. But then we are doing the boils. So the boils are so much fun because people just want to sit around and eat and drink and listen to good music. But I got to say the first one that we did would just crack me up because I dumped the shrimp on the table and everybody's just staring at it. And I'm just like, when are they going to, what are they? Oh yeah, I forgot. We're not we're not in New Orleans, you know? So it's like, I always just kind of forget that, that people are like not super familiar with it yet, but they will be. It's no secret that the hospitality industry is a tough line of work with long hours and unpredictable challenges. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began, the pressures for some have been unrelenting. In September of this year, the San Francisco Chronicle published a front page story exploring the recent phenomenon of restaurants closing for staff mental health breaks. Among the voices in the article is Peterson, who opens up about his personal struggles with depression, specifically how a weekend break from his pop-up last summer turned into three, as he took time to take care of his own mental health. The financial cost of closing? Over $5,000. But as he explained to us, the cost of ignoring burnout can be much higher. I think I was very fortunate. Um, I was dating somebody before the pandemic that really helped me see that I needed to go to therapy. Um, probably 30 years later than I should have, but it was a start. I mean, I never realized, like I was a therapy deniest. I did not believe in therapy. I thought that people that went to therapy were all crazy or had huge issues. And so I got lucky that I started going to therapy right before the pandemic. And it saved my life. I realized that it's just going in and like working on yourself and just wanting to be a better person and to be able to just be open and, and vulnerable is like 
such a rewarding feeling. It's, it's hard. It's very tough. But when I start talking about it, it makes me feel better because I realize that there's other people in this as well. There was one point with Bradsford Pickle where we thought we were about to close down and we wrote this email to everybody letting them know like, hey, my relationship with my partner, we are not in a good place. The business is not in a good place. Like we need to figure out what's going on because this pandemic is just destroying us. And it was the response we got from people that might've bought once were just like, thank you for being so open. Like we're going through something as well. And it was just this way to connect with this community of people that we're all going through this struggle. And just sometimes you need that catalyst of somebody to say something to start that conversation. And so it's just like we built this community based on just people being there for each other and just opening up and being honest and vulnerable. And then with Sandy's, the same thing happened. We had burned out so many times with Brentford Pickle and I could feel it coming on. It got to a point where I was not in a good place because it was just all way it just all came in at once you know the floodgates opened and i i mean i couldn't get off my couch like i said in the article is almost like quicksand i just felt like i was stuck i couldn't talk to anybody you know my best friend who we talk once or twice a day was calling and i couldn't pick up mm. and so i think that was just the moment where i realized like i think i need to make some serious changes when i finally took that time i was able to process the fact that i haven't checked in with myself during the entire pandemic. I haven't taken care of myself in years. Like the way that I'm gonna be happy and be a better person is like, I have to slow things down and check in. And I, I think I had to go through that, unfortunately. Well, you did come out about those issues in such a public way, because after all this story made the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. It, yeah, it was, uh, I, got a, I got a lot of grief from my friends because they were like, are you the depressed surfer on the front page of the Chronicle? <laughs> it's like. Yeah, I am. You know what? That's me. I am. It's just like having this conversation out in the open is huge and amazing. And sometimes you need to say something out loud to get that kind of feedback where people are like, okay, I'm not the only one in this. Like other people are going through this and it starts that conversation. And I personally have actually had a few of my own friends reach out to me and say, hey, do you have a therapist of mine or what's it like? And I actually have go-to therapy now because I just talk about it and normalize it. That's all it is. is I, I, that's all I want to do is like, if I can leave an impact on this world, it's just like letting people know that mental health is a really big issue, but it's not as scary as we make it out to be. It's just talking and figuring out what's going on. It's exploring and being curious. And I just want people to be happy. That's all I really want. That was Peterson Harder of the popular Muthalata pop-up, Sandy's SF in San Francisco. You can find him on Instagram using the handle Sandy's underscore SF. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. What are you doing the day after Christmas? Drag Queen Brunch at Tujac's is guaranteed to be the perfect antidote to any holiday blues. Learn more by calling the restaurant at 504-525-8676. And if you're still searching for the perfect holiday gift, visit poppytooker.com where you can order copies of all my books, including Drag Queen Brunch. 
reservations, and an autographed book? That's a special present. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. D'Agostino's specialty gift boxes are available now for corporate gifts and other holiday occasions. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch in the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, and producer Blake Longlinay. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.